so, um, has anybody ever seen the movie Remember the Titans? Remember seen it? Oh yeah, great movie, great movie. Denzel Washington, uh, football coach, um, and uh, one of, it's probably one of my top three uh, sports movies of all time. Um, I think you'd have to put Mighty Ducks in that. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, but one of my top one of my top three or four um, you know sports movies. Remember the Titans, where Denzel Washington plays a high school football coach, and when they leave for camp. You know, that, that summer camp, the, the week-long camp before practice starts, um, one of his players uh, starts giving him orders, right? Walking up, Gary Bertier uh, starts walking up and saying, hey coach, listen, we're gonna get along fine if you do this and you do this and you do this. And Denzel uh, gets into his face and asks, once we get on that bus, there's only one daddy on this team. And now you answer me this, who's your daddy? Say it. Who's your dad? Not you, but he's, I'm quoting him. He says, say it. Who's your daddy? And the player finally answers, you are. Great movie, right? Our passage today talks about two mothers. It talks about two mothers. And so I'm changing the question from who's your daddy today to who's your mama? Because there's two pictures here of two mamas that have big implications on our lives as a believer in Christ Jesus. And so I'm not talking about your birth mama, I'm talking about your spiritual mom, right? Who is your mama? So maybe Dylan, that's what we titled the message this week, I'm not sure. But we're in a section in Galatians, just for review, just to catch us all up, put us all on the same page, if you're, again, if you're new with us, where Paul pleads with the Christians in Galatia to resist the false teaching, the false teachers who have infiltrated the churches. Right? And these Jewish teachers demanded the Gentiles had to become good Jews before they could become Christians. They had to clean themselves up. They had to get their stuff together before they could come to Jesus, which is backwards. And hopefully you hear that this morning and see that. Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but that wasn't enough. Sound familiar? If they wanted to make sure they went to heaven... There were some things they had to do. And what Paul was talking about, and what Paul addressed was things like they had to be circumcised. They had to obey the Sabbath rules. They had to refrain from eating non-kosher foods. And the list went on and on and on. And since these Jewish teachers were proud of being, quote-unquote, the sons of Abraham, Paul used his, this part of the letter to take a little, bit of a, uh, a little bit of a sarcastic poke at their pride that we're going to see this morning. He reminds them that Abraham had two wives, Sarah and Hagar. Okay, now those two names are going to be really important for us this morning. And so if you're taking notes, write them down just so that we can refer to them. We're going to try to not get them mixed up and, and backwards. But Sarah and, and Hagar were the two wives of Abraham. The Egyptian, uh, Hagar, the Egyptian slave, was one of them. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And that's, that's, um, that's a big point too. Paul really digs end by saying that by forcing Christians back into the bondage of legalism, these teachers were proving that Hagar was indeed kind of their mama, their ruler, right? And spiritually speaking, not Sarah, spiritually speaking, we all need to answer the question, who are we following? Are we following legalism or the freedom that's found in Christ Jesus? So that's kind of the point of our message this morning. So again, Galatians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 21 through 31. You guys with me? Awesome. Awesome. Anybody ready for a turn or treat? I carried the candy in this morning. That stuff's heavy. Y'all did a great job. Thank you for bringing all the candy in. And, uh, and if you want to make sure you get your portion, we'll see you this afternoon, right? Uh, so verse 21, Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you 
who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, who gets all of that and is ready to pray and go home? Right? There's a lot there. Again, this is, this is, this is, a, this is a huge story. It's pivotal in what Paul is trying to get across to the church at Galatia. So I want to do my best to unpack that. I want to kind of, I know, I know we did this a little bit last week, but I want to kind of give you a bunch of information at the beginning of this and then talk about how Paul was trying to challenge the church of Galatia and how to apply that to our lives. Sound good? All right, sounds good. Jesus loved to use parables, didn't he? He loved to tell stories. He, I like to say often that Jesus did two things. He told stories and he asked questions, right? Jesus loved to tell stories and he loved to ask questions. Uh, he used analogies, he used metaphors, and while Paul was a great teacher, I think we would all agree, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, while Paul was a great teacher, he seldom included stories or parables. He was kind of a spiritual straight shooter, which is, I think, why his teachings are most used uh, in the body of Christ today. Spiritually a straight shooter, he, used, he usually just stated the unvarnished truth. But this is one of the occasions where Paul used allegory where he used a story of Hagar and Sarah and 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 this story is one of the juiciest stories in the Bible like if you're joining us for the first time if you've never been to church before let me just warn you this has all the elements of a modern soap opera like we're going days of our lives all over this thing this morning like like sand in the hourglass so are the days of our lives right this this story has all the elements of a modern soap opera and some of you may be sitting here listening this morning you might say yeah i saw this story play out on days this past week but let's get the skinny on the actual story and then we'll it will extract kind of the little truth like i said that, that paul is trying to communicate so here's the 411 on sarah and hagar okay in order to understand the point paul is trying to make Let's understand the background of the story between Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. It all started when God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and all of his descendants. Okay, so God enters this covenant relationship with Abraham and all of his descendants. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants so they would be a blessing to all the nations. Blessed to be a blessing. One, one evening, God told Abraham to look up into the star-filled sky. And he said, Abraham, do you see all those stars? You can't even count them. Micah and I did this other Friday night. We walked out on our back deck and just looked up. Let me tell you something. If you ever want to know one of the differences between Maine and North Kakalaki, otherwise known as North Carolina, just look up at it on a clear night. The stars are just unbelievable. We don't see that type of thing in most of North Carolina. If you go to Western North Carolina, anyway, 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 right? All right? But God told Abraham to look up in the star-filled sky. He said, you, you, you see those stars? You can't even count them. And this is what God told Abraham. This was the covenant that he made with Abraham. You're going to have more descendants than the number of those stars. And that was his promise. That was his promise to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah. So Abraham got excited because he knew that that meant Sarah was going to get pregnant soon, but it didn't happen. They waited years, no child. They waited decades, no child. And by this time, Abraham was about 85 years old. Sarah was around 75 years old, right? And at that point, Sarah came up with a plan to help God out. Because how many of you know, sometimes we get a little impatient, right? God, we feel like God's called us to something. We feel like God's promised us something. And we got, we got to kind of go and give God a hand, right? We got to help God out. So Sarah had this, this, this plan to help God out. She had a younger handmaiden, Hagar. Okay, so we got Sarah, we got Hagar. Right, the younger handmaiden Hadar, uh, who was her slave, she hatched a plan that 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 that, that most call most commentators, if you read about it, uh, they call this plan the Hagar solution. And she, and so she went to her and said, "Hey Abe," she went to she went to Abraham, her husband, and said, "Hey Abe, right? God hasn't given us any children, yet He promised that He He would give us, you know, these all these kids, all these grandkids that that, that our descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky." And she said, "I've got an idea." 
Why don't you sleep with Hagar? My maid. And maybe she can get pregnant. And as a father of faith, Abraham, right, should have been strong enough to reject Sarah's suggestion, right? He should have said, let's wait on God, right? Let's, let's, let's just wait on God. He promised us a child. I believe him. I trust him. But instead, he looked at Sarah and looked at Hagar and said, well, if you insist, dear. <laughs> right? We're on episode two of Dave's right there, okay? <laughs> that was one of the biggest mistakes made. And you'll see why in a minute. Hagar did become pregnant. And there were three terrible com consequences there of the Hagar solution. Okay, and we're going to talk about two of them this morning because they apply right to this Galatians passage. First of all, you get two women, right? There were two jealous women from that point onward. Sarah and Hagar, they became enemies, right? Hagar must have gloated over the fact that she was carrying Abraham's baby because Sarah started treating her harshly. They continue to squabble. You can see this in the book of Genesis. Um, and Genesis 16, 6 says that, that Sarah even abused Hagar, a word meaning that she literally whipped her, and Hagar ran away, and she returned only when God told her to go back and have the baby. Only a few verses describe, it, describe their hatred and jealousy, but you can imagine how they were at each other's throats from, for much of Hagar's pregnancy. Okay, now we're on episode like three, four. Okay, it's, it's getting pretty intense here. Right, so you have the two women. The second consequence that's pretty big here that we've got to unpack was of, of the Hagar solution was the two competing sons. Hagar gave birth to a son, and Abraham named him Ishmael, which means God is listening. So again, if you're taking notes, write that down. Ishmael meant God is listening or God is paying attention. For 13 years, Ishmael was the only son of Abraham. You can only imagine the seething and hostility between Sarah and Hagar, but then God kept his promise to Abraham, and Sarah gave birth to a son. When the angels told Sarah she would have a baby when she was almost 90 years old, she did what most... 90-year-old woman would do. She laughed. She laughed. She probably cackled at the notion that she would be a mother. But God has a sense of humor, so he told Abraham to name the baby Laughter, which is the meaning of the name Isaac. So every time Sarah called Isaac to breakfast, she'd be saying, Laughter, come get your breakfast. And she would be reminded of how she laughed at the promise of God. When Isaac was three years old, 17-year-old Ishmael began tormenting him. Began tormenting him. Ishmael had assumed for all these years he would receive his daddy's inheritance. And suddenly, he saw a rival. Something guys don't do anymore, right? So Ishmael mocked little Isaac. When Sarah saw it, she lost it. She said to Abraham, that's it. I've had enough with that Egyptian woman, Hagar, and, and her smart aleck son, right? Kick them both out and do it today. It broke Abraham's heart. But once again, he said, if you insist, if you insist. And so what does all this have to do with the book of Galatians chapter 4? This is the story that Paul cited when he wrote this letter. He was talking literally about the story of Sarah and Hagar. He was talking about how it applied to the two ways of salvation. Salvation by works and salvation by grace. He compared it to the two covenants, the covenant of the law and the covenant, the new covenant of grace. And here's the lesson for us. Two, two things to point out, the lesson for us. The first one is this. Ishmael, God is paying attention, is frustrating performance-based religion, while Isaac, otherwise known as laughter, right, is joyful living under grace. And we see those two play out. And that's really the tension that Paul's been going at this entire time. And again, don't, don't, don't get it wrong that, that, that legalism and the, and, and the standards, right, the, of, of, which, of which, you know, Christian living, right, they have their place. They have their place. But Jesus died so that we could walk in freedom. But we see these two tensions combating each other constantly, right, constantly. 
Am I allowed to enjoy this? Am I, am, am, am I keeping things in the right perspective? I'm at a crossroads with a decision. What is the best decision to make? I, I feel like God is opening all these doors. God's opening all these doors. And yet I feel a calling over here. And so it's, it's, that, it's that wrestling tension between, between works and grace, between God's will and our will constantly, right? And so Ishmael represents the belief that you can make yourself more attractive or lovable before God by doing certain good things. He represents that belief that we can earn our salvation by doing good things. And, and, and on the flip side, by abstaining from bad things, right? By saying no to some bad things, R-rated movies and four-letter words and different things like that, right? And his, his name even implies that God is always watching, right? That God is always watching. Like that police officer sitting by the side of the road with the radar gun pointed at you. And then you look in your side view mirror and he pulls out to come and bless you with a sheet of paper. <laughs> with a sheet of paper that has an address where you send a donation, <laughs> right? Legalism believes that you'd better be good and do well or else, right? Or else God is going to come down and punish you on the spot. What? And, and, and here's the thing. When you hear that, when you hear that, if you're anything like me, even as I was writing this out this week, when you hear that, when you type that, you think, what a miserable way to live. What a miserable way to live. But yet if we're honest with ourselves, some of us prefer the comforts of those standards. Some of us prefer that. And we don't only prefer it for us, but we would prefer for everyone else to live exactly like us. Wouldn't it be a better place, Dan Garish, if everybody was just like you? We agree. So stop trying to make us like you. Anyway, I'm just kidding, Dan. I like to poke a little fun at Dan, right? But wouldn't, wouldn't it be so boring if we were all exactly like Shannon, or all exactly like Dylan, or all exactly like Jan, or all exactly like, like Dave and Katrina, right? I mean, we, things would be so boring, and yet we have this standard for everyone else, right, and their way to live. We think their convictions should be exactly our convictions. But, but when we place people under the, even the legalism of our own way of living, what a miserable way to live. What a miserable way to live. So I've got good news for you, right? Jesus came so that we didn't have to live like that. That's the hope. That's the hope that we just sang about, right? He keeps hope alive, right? That, 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 that he came, died a sinner's death to pay our penalty. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you get the point, right? He came so that we didn't have to live like that. So let's talk about that. On the other hand, Isaac, born supernaturally, right? There's no way a 90-year-old woman could give birth like that. And the thought of that was laughable, exactly. It was a miracle birth that had to be the divine intervention of God. And can I tell you something this morning, church? That's what grace is. A divine intervention of God. Something you couldn't do, something you couldn't earn, something you could not fix yourself. But by the grace of God, he intervened and he did it for you on your behalf. That's grace. Grace is knowing that it is humanly impossible for me to be good enough for God. So instead, God had to intervene supernaturally at the cross to perform a miracle that I didn't deserve. Jesus became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. Ishmael was proud of being the firstborn son, right? He ridiculed little Isaac, little laughter. And legalism can produce that pride. Isaac knew he didn't deserve the blessing as the second son, but he accepted it as a gift. In Luke 18, Jesus told the story of two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a legalistic Pharisee. The other was a tax collector considered to be the worst of the worst sinners. And the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially this tax collector. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting like that? Right? God, I thank you that I'm not like the person sitting next to me. Right? 
Um, I, I fast, I tithe, I'm a good person, but this tax collector bowed down and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looked at the people that he was teaching. He said, which one of them do you think went home justified? The one that in humility dropped down at the feet of Jesus and said, I don't deserve this. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? And which of those attitudes are we most like today? Which one are you? Are you the tax collector? Or are you the Pharisee? Now, which one are you dressing up for at three o'clock? Okay, but which one most reflects the way that you live your life? Legalism lets you brag about how good you are, right? How good you are, how, how enough you are. Grace humbles you to realize that only God's mercy can save you. And so the first thing that Paul was showing them was that Ishmael, right, this, this God is paying attention, represented this frustrating performance-based religion that these false teachers were trying to get the Galatians to buy into, while Isaac, laughter, is joyfully living under the grace of Christ. Second thing we've got to point out from this story is Ishmael, which again represents legalism, and Isaac, representing grace, can't live in the same tent. Ishmael and Isaac can't live in the same tent. How many of you grew up with brothers? Amen, amen, amen. Okay, hallelujah. Hallelujah, right? I, I grew up with I grew up with two two brothers, right? Um and and and, and Brian, my, my, my middle brother, he's he's about eight or nine years older than me. There was a long period of life that I remember Brian. It was about the time that I got taller than him that this stopped. My dad always used to tell him around the dinner table when Brian was ragging me and beat me up and all these different things. It's okay. I've seen a counselor about all this. I'm fine. Okay. All right. Um, the worst was when he used to put my arms under my belly and then just lay on top of me. I couldn't move. I would just panic and flip out and scream for my mom. And she'd come running in. My dad'd be laughing. It was just great. Anyway, but my dad used to always warn him at the dinner table, hey, one day he's going to be bigger than you and you're going to want him to be your best friend. And it happened. It was like one day the switch flipped and he started to treat me well and give me golf clubs and all these different things. It was just a great thing, right? And so, and, and so it, it flipped. But, but I'm sure, I'm sure that between my complaining and crying and running into to mom and dad's room and saying, hey, Brian, just hit me again, right? I'm sure between that and then the Brian just side of things, just, just unapologetically, right? And he'll still tell you today, if he was standing here, right? He would still tell you today that he doesn't regret it because it made me tougher. <laughs> I got a flu shot yesterday and my arm is killing me. Right? So right, it made me tougher. <laughs> Should have seen it when Kristen ripped the band-aid off this morning. Anyway, bless her heart. Right? I shed a couple tears over that thing. Right? And so his, his, let's just say his method didn't work. Right? We went camping one time. Right? Uh, I remember growing up, we went camping one time. It was my dad, Brian, myself, and 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 we were setting up the tent and already fighting. Right? We just could not get along. I was about I was about eight or nine years old at the time. Brian uh, knew everything. He was like 16 or 17 at the time. He knew everything. Just asked him. He would have told you. Right? And so I remember that night we were camping. We had planned on one thing, a sleeping arrangement. And then and then at about 10.30 at night, after we'd gone snipe hunting, if you've never been snipe hunting, you should try it. It's awesome. Right? And for a couple hours, we got in the tent. And my dad quickly realized that he was going to have to reposition himself to sleep in between us if any of the three of us were going to get any sleep because Brian wouldn't stop pestering me and I wouldn't stop whining about him pestering me, right? And then, and it just became a whole thing. Anybody ever been there? Okay, I see those hands still, right? Right? And I think the same applies. I mean, I've never, anyway, I think the same applies on the sisterhood side of things, but I've, I, anyway, I've never had sisters or, uh, anyway, right? It does. It's just a sibling thing, right? But you know, you know, and there are some, oh, we've got four kids. There are a couple, there are a few of them, we could leave in a tent together. There are a couple, not a good idea. It's not a good idea, right? It's not a good idea. And what Paul is getting across, to the, what he's trying to get across to this church at Galatia, right, is this, 
this legalism mentality first, right? That you have to reach this standard, that other people around you have to reach this standard in order to be loved by God. Again, don't hear me. Go back and listen a couple weeks ago. There's a place for that, right? The fruit of the spirit, right? There's a place for those things. There's a place for that fruit. There's a place for change. If you give your life to Jesus and nothing ever changes, there's something wrong. We need to go back and look at that. Right? But for someone to reach what you think that's outside of Scripture is a standard for the Christian life is wrong. Okay? We can't put those things on other people. And what Paul, again, is trying to get across is that these two camps, this, this legalism-based faith and this grace-based freedom, right? they can't live in the same tent. You get that? One of you, I heard one response, <laughs> right? And so what we have to do is that we have to tell our legalistic leanings, right? That we, that we place on ourselves because, because uh, come on now, come on now. How many of you know you're your own worst enemy? Come on now, come on now. That's a message all in itself, right? We're gonna get to that when Paul takes a transition over the next few weeks into chapters five and six to talk about the freedom and that is in the spirit. And uh, so I encourage you to come back to that, right? We're our own worst enemy, right? So we've got to do that over ourselves to take our legalistic leanings and these, these standards that we, that, that we feel like we have to hold over our head and all of those things, right? We've got to tell them to take a hike and for the people that we're around when we try to do that on other people. Ishmael and Hagar, let's go back to the story, lived with Abraham for 17 years. It was nice to get some of those things off my chest about my brother. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening. I feel like, anyway, let's keep going. Right? They lived, they lived with Abraham for 17 years. When Isaac came along, there wasn't room for two wives and two sons. It was just when Isaac came along, though, right? I mean, when I was reading that this week and studying the story this week, it was 17 years. 17 years. Those had to be some awkward situations, right? And yeah, how many times do we leave ourselves and wrap ourselves in bondage for so much longer than we should because we're, we're scared of the repercussions or because we feel like it's the right thing to do? Ishmael was kicked out. And while that may seem harsh, the point is that law and grace can't coexist. Okay, that's the point the scripture's trying to get to. Right? It may sound harsh to our minds, right? Well, why didn't, why didn't this happen? Or why didn't this happen? Let's just, let's just agree it was doomed from the beginning. The Hagar solution was doomed from the beginning. They didn't wait on God, right? They didn't, they didn't trust the promises of God. It was doomed from the beginning, right? But the point is, don't miss the point, that law and grace cannot coexist. Either... Believe that there are many things you can do to make God happy or fall on your knees and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is there any legalism in your heart? I saw this this past week as I was studying the theme song of a legalist is this. Jesus paid it some, so I must pay the rest. My sin still leaves a crimson stain, so I must do my best. Right. We know the we know the real lyrics of that, right? Jesus paid it all, all to. My sin has left a crimson stain. Washed it white as snow. Good job, good job. Give yourself some snaps, okay? Very good. I don't know that I've ever mentioned this, but I think I think this is true, and maybe it's true for you. Maybe it's true for you, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons for this, okay? But just, just hear me when I say this and see if you can place yourself in my tent for a moment. I would say I'm a recovering legalist. I'm a recovering legalist. I hope you are too, some of you at least. One of my friends um, recently suggested that we start an organization called L.A. <laughs> Legalist Anonymous. <laughs> it would go a little bit like this. Hi, my name is Travis. I'm a legalist. If you've ever done any type of recovery, you know that the first step in any recovery is admitting you have a problem. 
Of course, we need to have LA meetings. If you want to be in LA, you must attend every meeting and be on time. And you must have filled out your LA notebook to participate. But wait, all of those things reflect legalism. Don't. What would it look like this week if you kicked out every legalistic thought you had? And I sit and say, well, Pastor, what is this standard? Like, what is... Let's talk about other people for a moment, right? When we try to hold legalism over other people's heads, the thing you have to ask yourself is, number one, is it in Scripture? That is the number one question. Is the standard that I'm trying to hold this person in Scripture? Secondly, secondly, and this is huge, has God asked me to address this in their life. And, he, and, and, and then to be would be, is now the appropriate time? And then the third question you have to ask yourself is, have I earned the right to be heard in their life? Have I earned the right to be heard in their life? And that's huge. That's huge because so many of us, so many of us sitting in this room, and I know, I know, I know, I know that you get in your car, right, from here, and before you even hit the stoplight on 114, if you're anything like me, you have evaluated the music this morning, the song selection, the level of sound, right, and some of that you've probably done verbally, and you've ripped the message apart. Pastor Travis just didn't do it for me today. Right? He just didn't do it for me. Right? I know. I know. I get it. I get it. I've gone to church too. Right? I've gone to church too. And when it comes to messages and when it comes to the preaching of the Bible, you will not find a bitter, a bitter. (laughs) There might be some truth to that. A bigger critic. A bigger critic than this guy. Because, because God has called me to give my life to preaching the word. And so when it comes to that, remember when I'm sitting in your seat, it's a fight for me to push Travis aside and say, listen, this isn't you today. Hear from the spirit of God, dum-dum. Right? Like, and so, but, but, it's, but it's a battle. Because as I'm sitting there, I'm saying, okay, is he engaging the congregation? Are they, are, are, are they staying true to the text? Or are they just trying to fill it with all the stories about brothers and tents and all those different things, right? Like, like, like what's, you know, what's he doing? Did he, do I really feel like he's prepared for this, man, right? Or, or so on and so forth, right? And, and so it's a, it's a battle. So I get it. But what would it look like? What would it look like if we stepped back and we gave the boot to every legalistic, critical, judgmental thought that we had over ourselves? and over the people that we come in contact with this week. I can imagine, right? And, and listen, listen, don't, don't hear this. Don't hear my heart that I'm bashing all of these things, right? But social media has given the legalists a front row seat to just really cranking that thing through the roof. Because you know way more about other people than you were intended to know, right? Like I know what some of you do when you go to an ice cream shop and some of the ice creams that you order. I know some of you get 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 the get the sugar-free, right? Soft serve. That is an abomination. <laughs> and you need to be called to repentance. <laughs> but that's not something I need to know. Right? That's not something I need to criticize. That's not something I need to be judgmental of. That's not something I need to get legalistic over, right? Right? Because by grace. In the freedom of Christ Jesus, you eat whatever bad ice cream or yogurt you want to eat. Right? You get what I'm saying? What would it look like if we kicked all of that to the curb this week? Every thought, every judgment, every piece of it, what would it look like? What would it look like? What would it look like? So there's three application points that I want to make from this story. That God inspired Paul to write to the church of Galatia to to show them a picture 
of what it looked like. This is a picture of what you're going through. This is a picture. You're trying to fit these two things under the same roof, right? You're in this awkward situation. You're in all of these things, right? They don't fit. They don't mix, right? You just can't do that. The three application points that I believe Paul are trying to point out is this. Number one, God always, say always, always. keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Can you imagine the awkwardness, the 17 years in the story, the 17 years that Abraham had to live the life that he lived and cre- this bed that he created, right? And we have the saying, you created this bed, you've got to lie in it, right? Can you imagine the 17 years of stress and, 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 and tension that he could have avoided? And then the years of, of, of counseling that he could have avoided for his two sons had he not bought in to this Hagar solution and he had just been patient waiting on the promises of God. And how many of us Try to rush God. How many of us try to, try to step outside of the promises of God in our life and make something happen instead of waiting and trusting the promises of God? One and two go really hand in hand. So let me go ahead and give you number two because I'm, 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 I'm referring to it already. The second, the second application point that Paul is trying to get across to the church of Galatia is God's, not, God's never in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. Come on now, one more time. God's never in a hurry. We're in a hurry, right? We're in a hurry. We, we, we are instant gratification, instant download people. Like, I cannot, I cannot imagine working at a, at, a, at a Wi-Fi organization, some type of network. Or Wi-Fi is what I call Wi-Fi. Okay, all right. Uh, just to clear that up for some of you, okay. Um, but but I can imagine living there because because nothing is ever fast enough for the people, right? Nothing's ever fast enough, right? Downloading not not never fast enough, right? I'll be honest with you, and don't some of you IT guys, some of you IT guys, I know, I know. Don't throw your phones at me, okay? Don't throw your phones at me. But don't you miss even for a moment? That AOL dial-up song? Come on. Like, I used to have a little dance and jiggle to that thing. Right? Right? I mean, it was just... But but God forbid we have to wait on something. Right? It's not fast enough. It's not fast enough. God is never in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. He always keeps his promises, and he's never in a hurry. See, God promised Abraham that he would have thousands of descendants. Abraham and Sarah showed a lack of faith when they launched the Hagar solution. And listen to me, church. God has made promises to you today, for today. For tomorrow, for that meeting that you're already stressed out about this week, for that conversation that you're already fearing that's coming. He's promised that if you come to him, he will give rest for your soul. He's promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised you that you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or the clothes that you're going to wear as Blessed tomatoes they might be. He'll take care of you the way he takes care of the birds and the flowers. Listen to me, listen to me. Buckle your seatbelt. Worry is a sin. Because what it basically says is this. God, you're a liar. And I don't believe you. Abraham and Sarah started worrying about God keep, wouldn't keep his word, not keeping his word, so they thought God needed their help. I know I've been that person. I know I've made up my own Hagar solutions in many places of life, ministry, family. But don't make the same mistake. Leave here today knowing that God will keep his promises. 
And you know, that's where the doomsday gospel that we talked about at the end last week really comes into play, is when you walk around and you see people just hanging their head, right? They're a believer in Christ, yet they're the most miserable person to ever be around. You know what that person's doing? Not trusting the promises of God. Now, let's talk about being in a hurry, right? We try to take shortcuts. We've already talked about this a little bit. We're an instant download culture. We want instant gratification. We're in a hurry. But God isn't. And here's the things we like to do. We want God to do things now. I want what I want. I want it now. It's like the person who prayed, God, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> right? And I know, the, I know the saying. I know the thing. But I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm going to pray for you at the end of this service that God will give you patience. I know you're not supposed to, right? That's the prayer that, that everybody asks you not to pray for them. Don't pray for patience for me. But just remember that with God's timing, His timing is more important than mine. And His timing is impeccable. Is there something you've been praying for Trusting God for it for a long time. Listen to me. Don't give up on God. Keep on praying. Keep on trusting. God isn't in a hurry. <sighs> Can I tell you one of the things I'm convicted about? As your pastor, can we get real for just a moment? If you're new or recent with us again, just tune this out for the next couple seconds, okay? One of the things I fear when it comes to this, trusting the promises of God, waiting on the promises of God, we as church leaders and, and church boards and church people, right? We are quick to find solutions for God-sized miracles. As I, as I look at this building that we're being called to build and being called to put together, right? That being led to, we really don't have another option. Now we're meeting in a middle school, right? But one of the things I've been convicted about over the last few weeks is this. What in this building project is Summit asking God to do that won't happen unless he shows up? Can I tell you something? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to do a capital campaign in the midst, capital campaign in the midst of a pandemic. It doesn't make sense with... with with where, with where building costs are right now and all those different things and all the inflation over the last 10, 15 years. Just talk to Bruce about some of the prices that he's seen over this thing, right? It doesn't make sense. But you know what? Go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. This is where God really moved my heart over the last few weeks. God shut the mouths of lions. God sent a flood and a God, God called, caused rain in a drought. Like, like we've seen, this book is full of God-sized miracles. And we're not asking for that anymore. We don't live with an expectation of that anymore. We're not willing as the body of Christ to take a step until it makes sense in the spreadsheets and on paper. And let me tell you something, church, that's not how God has asked us to live. As his body. That's not, that, that's not the thing. And I know that drives some of you absolutely crazy. I, I know, I get it. I want it to work out too. But there's a field of dreams and mentality that's got to come into play that if you build it, it'll come. My pastor used to say all the time. My, pa my pastor in North Carolina, uh, uh, Rocky River had a policy. They would give staff raises every year. They would it, 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 they just did it. That was a policy that they had. They would do it every year. And Jimmy's, Jimmy's statement every year when the, when the trustees would come to him, his, his statement, and, and they'd say, look, we can't afford it. Like, we're in the red this year. He said, it'll never be there unless we put it there. It'll never be there unless we trust God to put it there. I'm not, I'm not asking this. Hear me, church. Hear me, church. Hear me, church. Annual meetings in a couple weeks. Okay, we've got the budget 8% for next year. Okay, we're doing our due diligence. Okay, don't, don't hear that your pastor's going off the rails. Okay, okay. I'm not saying that we be irresponsible. I'm saying that we trust the promises of God. We are fooling ourselves. We are fooling ourselves. We can, we can have Paul call, oh, foolish summoners. Right? Well, like he did with the Galatians. If we think that we're in control of this at all in the first place, 
We're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. And so on a corporate level, I'm asking you with me, what of Summit's next steps does God just need to show up on or it's not going to happen? What does God just need to show up or it's not going to happen? You know, as I've, as I've rubbed elbows with some of the community folks and some of the community people uh, through, through this whole process and through the softball board that I have no business on being on and, and, and all those different things, right? As I've rubbed elbows, I've realized, man, the lost world is better at relying on supernatural forces than we are. And we have the God that gives hope in orchestrating the whole thing. That was all free. But I just needed you to know that I've been convicted about that as your pastor. Because I feel like every time we come to a meeting, it's all got to make sense. Right? It's all got to make sense. Hear me. That's great. I want it to. I really, really want it to. But it might not. And at what point are we trusting God for the in-between? Now as I've just freaked all of you out for the next two weeks before annual meeting, let me give you the third application. Y'all okay? When I replace God's plan with mine, there are always consequences. I struggled with putting always in there. And even though you may feel like it's hard, it's just like the kind of the, the, the Ishmael and Isaac story, right? It's true. That when I trust my plan over God's, when I put my plan in front of God, there are always consequences. See, God had a plan for Abraham and Sarah, but they substituted their plan for God's plan. And we're still suffering the consequences of their mistake. The Hagar solution is the perfect example of how dangerous it is to believe that God helps those who help themselves. No. God helps the helpless. The desperate. The desperate. God, I know we don't deserve it. God, we're on our knees, but we're begging you. We feel like you've called, you've called us to a community to do something different, to do something that doesn't make sense, to do something for the people. Have mercy on us. Provide for us in ways that we can't provide for ourselves. So hear me. God has a plan for your life. And I don't mean that flippantly like something on a coffee mug, but Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans for a hope that we sing about earlier in the future. The best way for God, the best way to find God's plan for your life is to spend time with him. I was thinking about this. I was, I was, um, I was hanging out with a friend of mine Tuesday morning, and he made the statement. He said, you know, one of the biggest needs of mankind is to be known. One of our, one of our deepest needs is to be known. And, and, I, and I thought about that for a moment, and, and, and I'm working on this for a message later, so just, just have a heyday, you know, critiquing this statement, right? But if we're made in the image of God, and our deepest need is to be known, how much more does God want to be known by us? the best way for us to find God's plan for our life and the, and the areas of, of faith that he wants us to step and the areas of, of, of rescue that he needs us to step into, right? That, 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 that we do so by pressing into his presence. And so I ask you, of those three, right, that God always keeps his promises, God's never in a hurry, and then if I replace my plan with God's plan, there's always consequences. Which one do you need to pray through the most? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, Pastor, I just need to trust the promises of God. There's some places in my life where I'm just not trusting the promises of God. Financially, relationally, parent, right? All the church, all those different, there's some places that I'm not trusting the promises of God and I need to, I want to. Would you pray for me there? Maybe you're sitting there this morning and say, Pastor, I'm trying to do it my way. I'm trying to rush the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to rush the Spirit of God and I need to be patient. I need to step back and say, okay, God, your time, not mine.
your will, not mine. Your school, not mine. Your job, not mine. Yours, not mine. And you'd say, Pastor, I just need to be more patient. Or maybe you're sitting there this morning and you say, you know what? I'm putting my plan before God's plan. We kind of already talked about it in the second one, but you just sit and say, okay, God, I'm trusting your plan. It's, it's yours. It's yours. Not my will, but yours. And replace yourself with him today. Which one is it for you? And I challenge you, take one of those and say, you know what, this week, this week I'm going to trust the promises of God. This week I'm going to be patient. This week I'm going to make sure it's his plan, not mine. What a story. What an image for the body of Christ in Galatia to go back and to look at the covenants that God made. Performance-based, grace-based. And in doing so for us today, how applicable that story is to our lives and to what we're walking in right now as a body, and as individuals. Amen. Let me pray for you. And so God, I pray for your church this morning. God, I pray that you would call us to a deeper trust of your promises. God, that you would stir in us a passion for patience. God, that you would cause us to replace your will with our will. And God, the song we're about to sing is a song of freedom. God, that we're no longer a slave. And I think of, I think of Romans, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. I pray that this morning you would transform our minds to trust your promises, to be patient, and to walk in your will. God, that is my prayer for your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.